Short game-wise, yes, I can. Long game-wise, no. No, I have not. He's talking the long game. They played the long game. The long game. They gotta play the long game. They played the long game. They're experienced and they played the long game. game is back hey everybody long game podcast is back case we just wrapped up a great interview with john sherman what did you what did you think what did you think of hanging out with john he's great his book's awesome the four foundations of golf if you don't have it i've been putting sticky notes into it uh, like i'm taking a medical exam or something um great he's he's a different kind of coach where he's not a swing coach he's not going to get into the technical stuff. It's more of the course management, expectations management, a lot of stuff that uh, myself and a lot of amateur golfers can use. So great, great interview. What do you think? I thought it was awesome. I've been a fan of John's for a while. I read his book last year. I've been following him on Twitter. As you and me have made more progress with the show, I've just started messing around on Twitter and I occasionally will click on someone's profile and I'll see that they follow me for whatever reason. And I've been DMing John for I don't know a couple months now and then the other day or a couple weeks ago I was like let's let's see if he'll come on the pod and he said yes which is awesome he gave us an hour uh really interesting stuff just talking about his approach to to golf and strategy and just has me excited about this podcast about who we might be able to get on and other great conversations so uh after that we're gonna we're gonna make picks for this week for the waste management and then we're gonna play our interview with John but um real quick what's your reaction to this Wyndham Clark, three-day shortened. You ha- you hate it? It's a big week. Hey, let's just say this now. Big weekend for Live Golf. No, no football, no PGA Tour on a Sunday. Neiman 59, Sergio, Rom. This is a big weekend. Live Golf is coming. Are you are you mad about this ending to this tournament? And what, what else could it have done? It is what it is. Yeah, I'll try to give my take on how things have transpired here with the tour the last four days without the... Um, the cloud over this that I had a lot of bets that did not include Wyndham Clark, and I was very eager for a fourth round conclusion of this event. So that's on me. Um, aside from that, I think it's a joke. Uh, as 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 far as much as I can say this right now on a Monday morning, um, not being at Pebble Beach, not having any clue about course management and how much a course, how much water a course can take, and how dangerous it is to have players out there and. 30, 40 mile an hour wind gusts, which I think they just call the British Open every year. But I think it's a joke and you couldn't have made a worse scenario for the tour where they have this Sunday with nothing on the week before the Super Bowl, except for the Pro Bowl. But if you're watching that, you're not listening to this podcast. So, um, but I think it's ridiculous. Like this is a signature event. It's one of their worst, as fans, we're being told this is one of the top, what, eight non-major tournaments of the year you've got one of the best fields i've ever had there i think if players made a stink about it they'd be playing right now or i don't know why you can't play on tuesday um but yeah i think it it couldn't have gone worse for the tour you had all these eyeballs on live um which you know they had an exciting finish and the tour is just kind of sitting there saying, we'll check tomorrow, tomorrow. They didn't even wait till this morning, Monday. They called it last night when they said they were going to check how the course was this morning. So 
What a if feeling, this, though. Everybody, if you're Wyndham Clark, though, you you end on a high note. You have the course record at Pebble. You you walk off with the elevated event purse. Get me. Let's go. I'll see you in Arizona, boys. <laughs> Ludwig is like seems like too nice of a guy to like make a stink, but like he missed that eagle putt on 18, which they were saying like you know this could be for the tournament. And the way they talked all weekend about like. Or especially on Saturday, like, well, we'll see what you posted. Like, it seemed like it was a foregone conclusion. They weren't going to finish this tournament. They were already, they're already, everyone involved with the whole, the broadcast, the tour, the rules official they brought in, or sorry, the the guy that makes those calls for the tour, they brought in the end of the Slugger day on White? Saturday. Is that the guy's name? I or forget. No, isn't that guy at live? Slugger White. And uh, what do you make of the... What do you make of the purists who say that um, it was preferred lies, and so it's a 60, doesn't really... How about they wrote that on the on the flag for Wyndham, on the course record flag? No, it's, what do you mean they wrote it on the flag? It's on. They gave him a flag I after saw a, I saw a sticker on the scorecard, but I would assume that that was given. Oh, I thought it was the something round. they wrote on the flag or no, something. That, I didn't see that. You have to, you can look that up. But I saw the thing people were talking about was on the scorecard. Oh, maybe a yellow on the sticker. Which they didn't put that on there after the round. They probably put it on before. So when you're asking your group, hey, are we are we cleaning them and lift lifting them? Then you yeah. yeah. So uh, obviously there's a, if, for the purists out there, that's an asterisk. To me, it was more, and I, I watched almost all of Saturday, not just Wyndham, but he had a few, but the drops these guys were getting in the rough, the free drops were insane, insane stuff. Like, let alone a plug, uh, obviously a plug thing on the fairway, that's well, horses soggy, for, but there was what, some stuff casual, on the rough. Casual water or like plugged, plugged Did balls? you see the Wyndham one? He got no, relief because that. they said there was a burrowed animal near there. He <laughs> was a, in. That's a P. Reed move, isn't it? The burrowed animal. Love it that. was like a plugged ball, but also next to a burrowed animal. And I'm watching, I'm like, is, is it visible? Can you see the animal? It was like a, a hole, but it was nowhere near there. Uh, but if it's someone plugged, else, but if it's plugged, you get a drop. Why is but it? But it wasn't field? plugged. No. It was like, it was a combination ruling. And you can see, you can go back and look. I think it was the same. Um, same drop where there's some issues maybe where he was stomping down the ground around there. If you, if you saw that on Twitter, I um, heard people talking about that. Yeah. Uh, it just, and JT got a, a, a drop or two that I thought was interesting. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure whoever had the core striker before, which was some kind of no name guy too, right? Some collegiate guy had the, had a 61 there a few years ago, but um, I'm sure that affects it. I don't really care. I think a 60 is a six. I mean, he made like, a mile worth of putts that day. So, but it's just, it just, it's hard when, I mean, it's funny. There are two 54 whole golf tournaments this weekend, right? One intentionally, one unintentionally. Uh, the PGA tour one, obviously that felt a lot like there was a lot left to be settled there. Sure. So how do we do, how do we do with our picks this week? You're asking that like, you don't know. I have no idea. So Dave had been in a huge, a huge hole in our grinders tour where we pick outside the top 150, but for the signature events, there's not a, a lot of guys that are there. So we pick some heavy hitters this week. Uh, you had over, I think a $2 million deficit this week, but I'll just say you are now the, the leader of this right now. You, you won something like I have it somewhere in here, but uh, between Scotty, Patrick Cantley and Jason day, I think you, you won this weekend about 1.7 million. And between Rory, Max Homa, and Maverick Ooh. McNeely, I had 140,000. So. Hey, if you if you run sponsorships at Malbon and you want to hook me up, you're welcome for that. So send me some send me some pants, send me some like golf is life streetwear. I will wear it on this pod. I got you. So you almost have a $300,000 lead on me now. So we're back to um, our reg- regular scheduled 
grinders, everyone over the top 150 in the world. But uh, did you get to watch this week either, Liv or, or PJ? Uh, no, I watched maybe five minutes of, of both. Well, and, it's uh, funny. It's funny that nobody on either tour knows how to take a, a drop anymore, <laughs> which is incredible. I, most people I play with, I don't know how to take a drop. I, I, there's no rules. This it's lawless. This whole thing, this whole thing is getting out of control. I will say that um, li- there's a lot of good players on Live now. Something's got to. Chi- I, I this just this whole thing sucks. This PJ Tour is weak. And- that was one of the first takeaways I had too. Was holy shit! Like there's a lot of. <laughs> And I mean, go, good players versus notable players could be a discussion, but that's, I, uh, especially if you're talking about where ratings come from and casual fans, Yeah, there's not a whole lot of difference. So fr- friend, of the, friend of the pod, uh, my buddy Eddie, who I play golf with, he um, texted me on, on Friday and he's like, or what, maybe it was Thursday, whenever the, t- the live tournament started, he says, so you, he says, are you downloading the CW app? Like I'm loading it up for this weekend. And I was like, ah, whatever. And then I go to my YouTube TV and I'm sitting here on my computer and I throw on YouTube TV on yesterday or Saturday and it's on. I'm like, oh, right. baby, I got this included. And I flip on. You didn't even know I'm, you have uh, the I'm CW. Watching, you posted this amazing thing on Instagram where John Rahm's putting. There's just like two people in like bathing suits standing on the sideline. But it just is still hilarious to me. I'm watching it and like John Rahm's teeing and it's like, there's just like house music playing in the background. I'm like, come on, this this is incredible. I, I tell you, the, everyone's complaining about the team aspect of it because I think a lot of people got exposed to it this weekend for the first time. The team aspect, I mean, it it doesn't bother me. I've always said, like, the, I don't understand why the Olympics doesn't do the team thing where, like, the team aspect really only moves the needle for me if it's a country thing. So if you get the Ryder Cup or, you know, U.S. versus Europe or President's Cup, I, I love, or the Olympics, which only does individual medalists wins the the gold, silver, and bronze. They don't do a team thing in the Olympics, which I think they should be. So I'm all for team stuff, but I don't care about it in something like this. I'm not sure the players do either. Or like, I like team if they play together. Like if it's two on two or four ball right. or like, totally. that's cool. Ryder like, Cup, Olympics. The aggregate, yeah. These four people are on a team and the aggregate of their score is a team win. It's those are To me, those but, are four things happening completely separately. Uh, the thing that I have the biggest problem with the format which I didn't, I don't know, maybe people talked about it, but I was shocked that it's not like, it was the biggest thing for me is these guys all finish on different holes. So you have this tournament that comes down to the last hole and the you're looking on the scoreboard just naturally, like what hole are these people on? And all they have is this thing at the top that says holes remaining. But the different, like, how are you supposed to keep track of, there's a lot of people bunched in that leaderboard within a stroke. Like, I don't know the my my Oka course, whatever. Like I don't know it's a par three versus a five where a guy has an opportunity to eagle this hole or that. It's so hard to get kind of a context on where the tournament is itself, just watching casually. Now, I didn't have the volume all the way up. I was multitasking, but to me that's golf. Like I want it on where I can look and in a half second do the math on like where things are, yep. where they stand. Yeah. It was really hard to figure out where people are finishing in the shotgun start kind of thing. I think I was uh, reading this in a book. Um Maybe it was in the PGL, uh, or was that what? Yeah, that that league the that they first all, one. the first one they almost created. It was supposed to be shotgun start, but then like on the last day of the tournament, they play the full. They play the they do tee times because there's a flow to a. And I didn't think of this until the book. There's a flow to a golf course, right? In architect, yeah, like totally. There's a there's a a, a, a thing. <laughs> so I, I totally can relate to that. Um, and like fans, how do you how are the fans supposed to know where to go? Or the fan in this case, the the. <laughs> two fans in bikinis on the beach but like how 
how is there supposed to how are you supposed to build drama if you know if someone's finishing on one hole and the other now I don't know enough about Liv to know if they try to stack the guys close to each other near each other so they're kind of condensed but um, something I really I want to do with you really quick about Liv before we get into picks um, I have right here I just went through my wallet I have a I have a hundred dollars cash and I'm willing to send it to you Dave if you can answer this trivia question correctly. That's I need cool. you to maybe back away a little bit because I, I, I trust you that you're not going to Google this, but I, I don't fully. There are 13 live golf teams. If you can name more than half, I'll send you $100. Let me, let me, I'm going to give you a second. I'll pull it up. But do you think you could name more than 16 names? <laughs> Let's try. <laughs> I'm going to be a stickler Ready? too. Ready? Some puns and stuff. Go ahead. Crushers. All right. I'm not going to make you do the Jeopardy thing where you say what is or, or in this case, do the golf club or whatever it is after. But crushers. Crushers. Uh, it's funny on this list. They all say the name and then GC for golf club. And then for crushers, it says CG. I'm assuming that's a, another live misprint, but go ahead. Are right, you got one? Is that one? Hmm. Smash. Yep. Cliques. Yep. Legion 13. Mm hmm. High Flyers. Five. You need two more. The Four Aces, or is it Aces? Four Aces? What's your final answer? Four Aces. Okay. Um, you need one more. Three, two. Did I say high flyers yeah. already? I think you did. It's <laughs> pretty good, though. I mean, you've, you've read this live book. I don't know if a lot of that's in there. No, no, no. The kudos reason, to you. The reason I know is because I was texting. I just mentioned Eddie. He texted me and we were saying, should we all rock? Should we get some live live hats? Should we pick a team? And I happen to look and I go, you got to say, like, they kind of have the, the, the crushers. It's a skull logo. It's kind of a cool... It's kind of a cool hat. And so I happen to look, but no, that's it. Six. Do you think you'll ever, or what? what's the first year you'll see someone wearing a live golf shirt or hat, just like a team hat? What, what year would that be? Well, it depends on where, like uh, I'm in Vermont. And so I think in Vermont, someone wearing a, uh, living a, wearing a live golf hat is, is, is not going to happen. Uh, Let's make a pledge right now to our followers, fans, listeners. If we ever see anyone in any live golf gear, we'll take a selfie with them and we'll we'll post it here. It's I like actually a, was thinking like how absurd would it be if I just got if I just got like the straight up like flat brimmed camo live golf hat and like that's who I was. Hey, um, this is my buddy Dave. He's in town from Vermont. We go to play your place. I'm rocking the live golf hat. No, not a specific team. I'm just a fan of the league in general. Yeah. It's almost as weird as we talked about wearing like a manufacturer hat, like a Callaway hat, right? It's no, which is there's some way I thought we said that's fine. Don't don't go all fried egg on me now. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's fine. Um, I can see why when you when you really think about it, it could be weird, right? Like it's just a yeah. it's a it's a piece of equipment. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, it's sure. kind of gotten bigger in the golf world, but specifically yeah. these live golf team stuff. If you're like a fan of a team. Because these have no affiliation to regions or, right. I don't know, except for, right. I guess, you could make the case for ROM and, I don't know. It's just, make the uh, case. 
like I, I, it, it what really disappointed me most watching it was it just reaffirmed that like I'll watch any golf if there's no if the PGA Tour is gonna drag their feet on whatever I know it was probably hard to play yesterday but dude I'm a sicko. I'm watching I'm watching, I'm watching Bryson and Sergio play a one play a nine hole match with one club on YouTube of course of course I'm gonna watch if the yeah. golf is on TV uh, last thing on live the whole thing on the whole scuttlebutt on on social media was like these commercials are 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 nothing like the PGA Tour, like people doing side-by-side comparisons of recording their, like a TV and a laptop next to each other of live golf playing on one and then just commercials on the PGA broadcast as if you couldn't just time that and record one when one was in commercial. But I think a lot of people were watching the YouTube feed, which it doesn't have commercials, I guess, or less. There was nothing but commercials, what I watched on, on the CW. A lot, a lot of them promos for vampire diaries and stuff like that. But Slaps, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, let's make picks. Okay, let's do, I do it. The first, um, do, am I up first? Because I'm the hot hand right now. Yeah, we're going to this week. We're going to the waste management, which is a uh, notable one for a lot of reasons. Mostly the famed uh, 16th hole. Right? Um, have you ever been out there? I've, I've I went out once and played the course once, but nothing really. I haven't. No. To report. I have not. My only thing I'll tell you is that we played. I went actually on our baby moon. My wife and I. She didn't. Wow. We went to like some spa in that area, but. Uh, we went over to, I went over there and played one round and it was late October. They were building the entire city of the course around me. And the star, the guy there was like, oh, they, they don't give a shit. There's going to be jackhammers. And so it's pretty funny. Like I played the 16th. It was like a ruin of that because they were still building it. Um, interesting time to play it. Very loud, but it's a very TPC course. If you played one of those, you've kind of played a lot of them, but um, yeah, I'll give you the first pick since you uh, you won last week. So All right, this I got week a, we actually young, will have to go outside the 150. Uh, he's number 180 in the world. Um, Saint Young DG. It's not me. Young Doug Doug Gim. Doug Gim. What do you know about Doug Gim? Tell me. Just just got a feeling like I don't know. All right, that's that's, that's <laughs> all I could say. I like the I like him. I like his name. I like his whole aura. All right, and what number is he in the world? <laughs> Doesn't matter, just over 150. All right, shout out Doug Gim. Um, I'm going to go, I tell you, there is slim pickings this week. And I, I, once again, this was my downfall last week, but I pulled up uh, our friends at datagolf.com and doing some course experience work. Uh, This is such a front runner tournament. If you look at the top 15 from last year, it's like the top 13, 12 guys in the world. Uh, so these 150 plus guys are, are going to be hard to come by. But I'm going to go with, this might shock, shock you, but I think waste management, who do you think? <sighs> ah, you're going to take Joel Damon, aren't you? No, I'm going Charlie Hoffman, who, <laughs> where, who rocks the <laughs> oh, waste management. Right. <laughs> now, he hasn't played well in a while. I think he had a good end of the season. Um, but this is a tournament. I mean, he is like their ambassador, right? I think he's still with 300th them. 300th in the world. Yeah, wow. he sure is. But this is the he. Uh, I think he's. I think it's a home a home event for him just because he's been sponsored by these people for so long. I assume he's still sponsored by them. Uh, but this is also the tournament two years ago where he had a freak out. He had to take a drop and his drop went, went like rolled into the water and he freaked out. And he was like a president of the players council or something there, some in a position where you shouldn't be. Interesting, you know, screaming at your tour and said, this is why people want to go to that Saudi league. Um, so he's got some some uh, fans to win back over there this week. 
probably a long shot, but might as well. I'm also going to go with my guy, Peter Melnati, who I took a few weeks ago. didn't do well for me, but the stories coming out of the um, SSG announcement call last week were that he followed Tiger on the call. And golf is all about confidence. So if you're if Peter Malnati is following Tiger Woods on a call to all of uh, the PGA Players Association, uh, he's got to be riding sky high. So I'm going to say Peter Malnati is going to show up this week. He's he's a really thoughtful guy. I, they they had him on no laying up a couple uh, like once or twice because he's on the board last year, and I was like, I, I, I he he won me over. So yeah, I respect that. Um, I respect that pick. Um, oh, you get two picks unless you think Doug Gim is good for you and you're good with just one guy. I'll take Doug Gim and Sahith Tagala if you'll. Give me that. Um, Sahith's pretty pretty good. I don't think he's one fifty he plus. Not, he's ninth in the world right now. Um, I like um, I like Carson Young. Yeah. Um, just because he's on my screen right now, I like. Yeah, Carson not sure. Young. I I almost picked him too. I'm not sure he's ever played at this tournament or this course no. before. He's, that he's close enough to Cam Young, so I like that. Yep. Um, and then I'm gonna take. Just feels like a Kevin Streelman type of. Mm. type of weekend you know i like that so those are my grinders picks but i'm i will say um i am a big sahith fan i wish he won this tournament two years ago obviously this was a big drama in the in the netflix series i'd love to see somebody like him get a dub this week uh, i should be around i should have some time to watch the golf i'd love love to see something you know something like that maybe they'll play all 72 holes this weekend yeah i i hope so what uh, do you got desert Case? there um, and uh, just to piggyback on that, yeah, that's the best uh, full swing episode for me, season one, when he breaks down with his course. parents and you just don't see professional athletes. Uh, I got a little misty. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, that if that didn't win you over, um, I think you got a lot of fans. And it shows the value of that show, too, how you can shine a light on these guys that people may not know as much. And, and the guy's dad is maybe the best character on tour. I, we should get his dad on this podcast. <laughs> Because he loves to talk about his son, and I would love to talk to him. You you find his Hotmail address, and I'm happy to reach out. <laughs> you got it. All right, my last pick. Uh, I'm going through a, a bunch of guys here, but I'm just going to throw out a, a ridiculous one. Uh, I'm going to go with Zach Johnson. And he he's in this field because of a career money exemption. You have any idea what that means? I, I mean, I can put together what it means, but did you know that even existed? A career money exemption gets you into uh, I only now? know it because I've been looking at this thing more like when we do this and I've heard other people talk about it, but there's just like, in, there's all these levels of exemptions to get into these events. And That's crazy. what a feeling, man. This guy's made a boatload of money playing golf. He's, he's captain of the Ryder cup. He's like, yeah, what are we doing this weekend? Sure. Should I play waste? I'll go play waste. Like how nice is that? I'm surprised that you picked him after, you know, him not getting it done for you in the in the Ryder cup, but maybe you're able to put that aside. Yeah, I didn't think about that till you just said it. And now it brought back all sorts of bad memories. So um, I'm not going to change it, but he's been getting a lot of shit for getting into some tournaments that maybe people think he shouldn't be in. So every once in a while, you'll just see Zach Johnson pop up on a leaderboard and like, oh, well, Zach Johnson. So these stadium courses, I feel like, are gettable. Someone can have a, a big day. So all I right. got Hoffman, Melnati's, Jack, Zach Johnson. You've got Doug Gim, uh, friend of the program, yep. Carson Young, and Kevin Streelman. You got it. And Scythe. Um, and yeah. by the way, uh, before we get into this interview with John Sherman, and we got to go, uh, looking at listener trends for the past uh, couple months, we we have essentially, we have doubled our uh, 
listeners every month, November, December, January. So if you're listening to this right now, tell a friend about the Long Game Pod. This is only the beginning. Send it to a friend. Hit follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are. But we got a great interview for you right now with John Sherman, Practical Golf on Twitter. I hope you have a great week wherever you're listening to this. Enjoy our conversation with John. And uh, Rory, come on the pod. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Long Game Podcast. I'm Dave Gearhart. This is my co-host, Casey Ford. We have a special guest today. I don't want to say he's my favorite author, but John, he's 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 up there. He's not... Uh, <laughs> this isn't Malcolm Gladwell. This isn't... Uh, um, uh, Nassim Taleb. No, this is what I, I'm a, I'm a sicko now, John. I lay in bed at night and I'm reading the four, <laughs> four foundations of golf. I was on a golf trip last year with a bunch of my buddies in Myrtle beach. And I'm like laying in bed at two in the morning. I couldn't go to sleep. And they're like, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, I'm reading this, this book. Real quick. I'll but, tell you, Dave, look, look at this thing. I've been walking around my house with this. My wife's like, are you studying for something? Like, a test? <laughs> like kind, kind of? Kind well, it's of. perfect because I think the motto of this podcast is dress for the job you want, not, not, the, not the job that you currently have. So uh, anyway, John is uh, John Sherman. He's at Practical Golf on Twitter. He runs a popular golf improvement site, Practical Golf. He hosts the Sweet Spot podcast, and he's the author of The Four Foundations of Golf. He was crazy enough to write another book, which we'll we'll talk about <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I've got uh, my. Oh, I'm starting look at to that. just doing a little. Have you been studying? studying? Oh, is that an early well, copy? I'm, what is that? I'm looking for mistakes and I'm beating myself yeah. up. That's what that is. All right, so we're gonna talk. I want to talk about your your writing process. We do we do a little bit more than just talk about uh, golf here. But I've been following John for a bit. Crushed the book last summer. Um, Casey and I start looking at this podcast. Hey, who can we have on? That's interesting. It's funny how this works. I click on Twitter. I go and I see John Sherman follows me. We've traded a couple DMs over the year, and I'm like, "Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to John and see if he'll he'll hang out." So I have an icebreaker for you, John. One of the things that Casey and I like to do on this podcast is we talk about the things that drive us nuts about golf, like your average Saturday morning round. And I saw you tweeted this a week or so ago. You wrote, "One of the best traits a golfer can have is to be easy to play with." Something Casey and I talk about all the time. So, John, what does that mean? What is it? How do you articulate? What does it mean to be easy to play with? Well, I, I know this intimately because I wasn't easy to play with for a long time. I think, um, I, I think there's a number of things that go into it, but the way I like to think about it is that you know, golf is an individual sport or game, but it's also a shared experience, which is awesome. Um, but there's also a downside to that because. Um, there comes a time in the round where your play is not meeting up with your expectations and you start getting frustrated and losing your temper. So, you know, one of the things that I didn't do a great job of for a number of years was that, you know, I would just be either losing my temper or talking about how poorly I was playing. And, and nobody really wants to hear it because, you know, the goal of playing golf is to enjoy your time together and obviously focus on your own game. So I think one of the main traits of being easy to play with is that you're not making it all about you and how you're playing. It's more of a shared experience and you're trying to strike up conversations and have a good time. And that is easier said than done at times, but that that's what immediately comes to mind. Do you have a nightmare foursome? You hear a lot of people talk about like Mount Rushmore of foursomes or <laughs> what's your nightmare foursome of, of, you know, um, you know, cheating guy or, you know, slow play guy. What's your, what's your nightmare? So the, 
I guess number one is uh, the I've never played this poorly before guy. Um, oh I play always... that guy every week, John. Yeah, exactly. I know him pretty well. <laughs> uh, I've been him. Um, but yeah, the the player that always is like, you know, they have a rough start and they're like, oh man, I've never played this bad before. I'm so sorry about this. And and I get it. Like we're, you know, we're embarrassed. We're a little self-conscious. It's totally normal. Um, number two would be definitely the temper guy. Um, I've been around some really big hotheads over the years, whether it's in tournaments or just recreational play. And yeah, no one wants to be around someone who's slamming. I've unfortunately broken a few clubs in front of people. Like you you don't want to see that. You don't want to be that golfer. Um, And then last would be the just taking a crazy amount of time. And this, this again goes back to the shared experiences that, you know, I, I don't believe there's any reason for people to have very long pre-shot routines or sit on the green and, and look at it from 40 different angles before you putt. Um, I, I prefer people to play with a little more um, fire under their butt. So, yeah, I think the golfer that just takes forever to hit the shot. And, I, and again, I, I want to be aware that people get frozen over the ball by their 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 fears but if you have a predefined process that takes forever like i I, i'm not in love with that (laughs) and casey and i share this trait of like we're we're both the we're both the paranoid one in in the group where like if the group is playing slow and i hate that this happens to me but i feel the burden of that oh me too yeah i'm like man these guys are right on our ass and i'm looking at the three other guys that i'm playing with i'm like do any of you see what's happening right now and then it messes me up like i'm the same way like my big pet peeve in life is not respecting other people's time (laughs) and i've been in some like big tournament moments where we got put on the clock and it's just like it's just burned in the back of my head and yeah, I, I'm like that too. I, I look at the team behind me and say like, well, there's people waiting, like we got to get going and other people can be unaware of that at times. Totally. I mean, I have the, I have this at the airport. I'm like, I'm not, look, we're late for the flight. I'm not cutting all these people in line because we, we showed up late, you know, or I have it walking down the street. There's like walking the stroller, like, well, there's people trying to get past us. I, uh, of course have it on the golf course. It's funny. You're saying back to the uh, nightmare foursome. I think we've all played with with guys that had all, all three of those traits in one. So when you get a superpower like that on the course, just the worst person to, to play with. So we're on my the same favorite. Page, my right? favorite about the hothead though, is you, you never, it's always the most, the, it's always the guy you don't expect to be the hothead. You're like, Whoa, that guy has a temper. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> wild. Yeah. Your true self. Yeah. No, no, there's a, there, there's a, there's a gentleman that, that plays in a band. He's got a long, he's got long hair He's it looks very mild mannered, and uh, they do a bunch of kids kids concerts around the town. And my wife and I see them, and I point him out, and I say, "You see that guy? He's an absolute psycho on the golf course." My <laughs> wife is like, "No way!" I'm like, "Oh yeah, the the bass player over there—that's him. That's him." It's like all um, your 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 deepest psychology <laughs> comes out on the golf course. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. But I think you've talked about this either in Twitter or on your in, in your books and everything. But there's something to be like. Nobody is paying attention, and this is something I've taken a long time to realize, and I still realize this. But like, nobody cares about you, and you're like, we're all focused on our own games. Can you talk about that a bit? Just like your observation. I think people care when you make them care. Like all those examples we just gave, like that's when people start paying attention to you when you're becoming a distraction to their game. But I would say the baseline attitude of most golfers I've played with is that. This game's difficult. It's mentally draining. It requires a lot of focus. Like there's a score attached to our performance every day. 
and most of our attention is on ourselves and what we're doing. And everything else is kind of like this foggy thing in the background. But again, if you start throwing clubs or you're taking three minutes before you hit a shot, well, then that fog starts disappearing and I'm noticing what you're doing. Um, But what I try and talk about in the four foundations and even my new book in a competitive uh, context is that, yeah, this is mostly... I don't want to say selfish in a bad way, but this is a selfish game. It's not a team game. This is an individual game. And I think what I try and do is free people up is that, you know, whatever you're worried about, whatever you're embarrassed about, others have the same moments, um, have been through it. I don't care what level you play at. (laughs) You made a fool out of yourself. And I think you can free yourself up when you really embrace the fact that no one is paying attention to you as much as you think they are. Um, and you just kind of have to go about your business, have fun, um, and kind of accept all these outcomes. But if you add that other element where it's like, oh, I'm so embarrassed, you know, I'm playing poorly in front of this group I've never met before, or they're good friends, well, that makes it harder to perform well. And like you're just adding another um, enemy against yourself, so to speak. Hey, Case, jo- John said that it's not a team sport. Obviously, he wasn't plugged in to live Mayakoba yesterday because. <laughs> I was we were we were watching Legion thirteen all day. Uh, anyway, uh, I, w- before we get super deep in the golf stuff, can you just can you set some context, John, about your background? You're a you're a high level competitive player. I, I don't know if you've. I feel like you're in the plus plus two three ish handicap. You I've seen you qualified for the the U.S. Mid Am with a with a cool little sixty eight. Just give some context for like the history of your game and your playing ability now, and then we're going to get into some other stuff. Yeah, I mean, long story short, I took up. I got obsessed with golf when, when Tiger got big, uh, when he won the masters, when I was like 12 or 13. And, you know, I was a decent junior player. I, don't, I wasn't a standout, um, probably like a three, four, five handicap at my best was a captain of a mediocre high school varsity team. Um, was kind of a mess competitively. I walked onto a division three team in college, played one tournament that I was forced, my, my coach was forced to play me. Somehow I came in second and that was the end of my college career. So I, I didn't have, you know, my, my first act of golf was that I think I had some good abilities and I worked hard at it, but I didn't really connect all of the dots and, and reach my potential. Um, and then when I came back to the game, you know, I, I struggled a bit in my twenties cause I lived in New York city and couldn't play much. But when I had children and moved out of the city and became, uh, you know, more avid golfer again, I started to unwind a lot of my mistakes and that became, you know, the beginning of my website, practical golf, my earliest blog posts in 2015. So long story short, the last decade, like I've played a ton of tournaments and I've kind of. I've gotten to where I'm, you know, I've been plus one, plus two handicap. I've won a few club championships at this point. I've done well in a lot of, you know, what I would call elite amateur events in our area. And unfortunately this year or last year, I think my crowning achievement was winning the the medalist at a US Mid-Am qualifier and getting to the big show. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not a standout. I'm not someone who had like extraordinary talent. In my new book, I kind of write that I, I fought and clawed my way to the to this level of performance. If you saw me play, nothing would blow you away. But I just kind of consider myself like a normal guy who was always on the outside looking in and I, I figured some stuff out and I'm trying to help other people along the way. Well, I love that uh, 
so Lou, Lou Stagner, who we, you have a relationship with, you will follow on Twitter. He posted a video of your swing like in December. And wow, he, that he, killed me. I oh. know. I, I, I couldn't even, I, I can't, I, I couldn't he, even. I wasn't paying that. attention to when he asked me. He's like, do you mind if I do this? And then I didn't realize he was going to say it was me too. And I was just like, oh God, I was like, but, I don't want to deal with this. But it's so funny. And I, so I, uh, I, I become a little reply guy in there on Twitter, and I comment, "Oh, I love I love this game where all of the 15s tell the plus two that he's an eight, <laughs> an eight, you know, like." But um, but I I do think there there is something there in that like you you got to learn how to score, you got to learn how to play in the era of YouTube golf. I, I was actually just texting, and I have a story for you about my path in golf, but. I was texting with a guy who, my coach, who I get instruction from, I sent him something on YouTube and he said, stop. He said, stop sending me YouTube. Like, and I, I'm the biggest, I'm guilty of this in the biggest way, which is like in the era of YouTube golf and Instagram and social media, it is, you know, it's very easy to lust after like the perfect swing, the perfect mechanics. When what I like about the stuff that you write about is you're, you, you, talk about the importance of having the right mechanics and having a fundamentally sound golf swing. But you know, the four foundations that you talk about are expectation management, strategy, practice, and a sharp mental game. And I think that's a cool pocket of golf that uh, until I started following your stuff, I didn't really have a great resource around. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's playing skills and then there's swing skills. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very, forward on our podcast and and you know i work with adam young a lot in our books is that a lot of people look at us and like oh those guys are against technical work and all that stuff and no we're we're i'm totally forgetting swing lessons i love it but when i came into the golf world i thought that yeah there was nobody talking about these playing skills and i knew that if you focus too much on the swing and obsess about it, like there's a diminishing return that happens. Like that actually can make you worse. You know, knowledge is not always a good thing with the golf swing. And I just felt like all these other, you know, topics were being, there was stuff that really good players had figured out and that they, they knew about, but I think the rest of golfers just hadn't thought about it or they didn't focus on it. So I was like, well, let me shed some light on these playing skills and that took me a long time to get noticed for that many years. Um, and fortunately, when the book came out and I kind of put it all together, people were like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Um, and I'm not the only one talking about it either. I think there's other people doing it now. So, yeah, I think, you know, having you want to work on your swing, you want to get the technical parts in a functional position and impact throughout the swing. Uh, but you also need to pair that with these playing skills, which are quite important to scoring as well. Talk a little bit about, um, and you put it first on, in your book and in, in all the chapters of the, the four foundations is expectation management, which to me is, I think, one of the biggest things, especially for uh, someone newer to the game. I have a lot of friends that picked up the game three, four, five years ago, and they struggle with this specifically. And it's it's something I try to echo to them, which is, you know, if you if you can't put in the time, you shouldn't expect to, to you know, be a, an incredible golfer. So talk a little bit about expectation management, how you came to that philosophy too. Wait, and, and let me let me add something because we sure. we told this story on last week's pod related to the new golfer. I told us I told Casey this story about how I played in a tournament last summer. I was I just played in a four day tournament. I played like shit. I didn't want to go play. I signed up for this thing on Monday morning. I made myself go, didn't warm up, didn't hit balls, got to the first tee, something I never do like two minutes before my tee time. And I went out and made, I, I had six birdies, six bogeys, and I shot my first like even par round in a competitive tournament. And I walked off the course that day and I'm like, 
do, do I need to change everything that I thought about golf? Because I came <laughs> in today with no expectations, no warm up, and I just played the round of my life. Yeah, I think golf, it, it's, it's so interesting to me because I've paid attention for a really long time to people, how they behave on the course. And, you know, golf attracts a lot of people who are successful in other walks of life. And then they get to golf and it's like, well, everything that made them successful elsewhere is not working in golf. It's not always like, well, if I do X, I get Y. It's not as straightforward. And I think that's what really frustrates some people. Um, but yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways I try and help people with their expectation management because I always say that if you don't get this part of the game right, um, you're not going to have fun. You're not going to get better. Uh, it just makes it really difficult to excel in this game if your expectations are not in line. And that could be a number of things. As, as you mentioned, it's like what beginners think you know, a good golf shot looks like hell advanced players sometimes don't know what a good golf shot looks like. So just trying to paint a picture with, you know, whether it's stats on dispersion or putting make percentages, um, how far you should hit your driver, how close to the green you should be hitting a seven iron. When people see these things and these benchmarks for different handicap levels, they're like, well, wait a second. I'm actually a lot better than I thought I was. <laughs> and with that, you know, your your reactions on the course are different and you have a new mindset. So I think, you know, one of the, the best pieces of feedback I've gotten from the book over and over again is that the first section gave them a different mindset as they approached the game. And they're like, I'm playing better just because I'm not as hard on myself. I'm having more fun. And I always say like your best golf comes when you kind of let go versus trying to force it, which Dave, you know, you mentioned that that tournament where you showed up on a Monday, not expecting much, you just kind of like let it happen. And then you weren't, you know, trying to force the issue. And that's, that's difficult to get into that headspace that that requires, you know, a lot of experience. Um, and, and you never really conquer that part of the game, but that's what I find fascinating about golf. It's this like constant, it never ends. Like I have to work on it myself. It's this constant process of matching up the inputs, how much time and effort, um, your current skill level versus like what you expect to get from a performance perspective. And that's that equation like never gets solved completely. You have to keep working on it. How do you how do you approach something like that with like a big tournament that's been your goal? Like you show, you know, you you want to qualify for the mid-am. You ended up winning that event. You're a medalist in that event. Like, how do you not, how do you take both sides of that? Because there's there's a balance of like, you know, every, there's that great uh, clip with uh, Tiger and Annika's son this year. And he's like, I'm so nervous. And Tiger was like, you should be. That's That means you care. Yeah. But you can't I, I, care too much. So the night before that event or that day, how do you not put so much pressure on yourself? What's the mindset you try to get in? So the one thing I'm trying to hammer home in this new book is experience. Um, competitive golf is different. It's not the same. Um, it might look the same, but you don't feel the same. And the only way I was able to walk into that qualifier completely, um, at peace with whatever was going to happen and not nervous was that I had done it a lot of times beforehand. You know, I've put myself through, you know, a lot of qualifiers, matches, you know, club competitions since, you know, 2015. So me showing up to a USGA qualifier or even a, another big qualifier in our area, it's not that new or different for me. So my brain's not looking at this like, oh, what do you need to do differently? It's like, I, I've, I've done this before. I'm going to go through my process as cliched as that sound, and I'm just going to do it. Um, and hopefully like the variance of my scoring works in my favor this, this time. But even in that round, 
I had gotten to five under par through 10 holes, which was not completely uncharted territory for me, but I was like, well, shit, <laughs> we're like on the border. We're yeah, the border we're, we're you know, territory. <laughs> you know, if that happened five or six years ago, I don't think I would have been able, like, I would have like passed out. <laughs> and that's, that's me right now. I'm like, oh yeah, my God, I'm blacking and, out right now. <laughs> but I leaned on the experience and I'm like, you know what? This is fun. Like, this is why you've done all of this, like to put yourself in this position and it's okay to be nervous. And if I blow it, that's okay. But you know, this kind of different voice emerged saying like, this is awesome. Like, this is where you're meant to be. Like, you're going to do this. And it worked out that day. And sometimes it doesn't work out, but you need to really be willing to make yourself uncomfortable and learn from those experiences and have the right mindset. So that again, when you show up, you're like, this isn't like the worst thing you could do is expect great performance in something that's new and different because you just don't have the reference point uh, in your brain. So, um, much easier said than done. I'm still not, you know, I'll still show up to tournaments and get nervous. Like when I got to the US Mid-Am itself, that was very nerve wracking for me. It was a lot of anxiety I had to deal with because that was new for me. I'd never played a national championship before. I'm literally walking down the fairway next to Stuart Hagestad in the first day, like he's two groups ahead of me and he goes on to win it. And I'm like, well, well shit, now I'm rubbing elbows with this guy. Like that's that's new and different. I have a question for you. This is going to be Dave therapy. Um, how do you get off to a better start? So two years ago, I started to get into competitive golf. Basically, I have a sim similar story. I lived in Boston for a long time. My wife and I and kids, we moved out of the city. We moved up to Vermont. I happened to get a house right across from a golf course. I take my, I, I hadn't played golf in like 10 years. I channel all of my free time and creative energy into playing golf. I finally get a great instructor, Dave Jankowski. We had him on the podcast. He blew my mind because I, I agree with all the stuff you're saying, but I do feel like there is some baseline of swing mechanics. And what I learned was like, oh, you've been swinging it seven, eight degrees left your whole life. And there's a lot you're not going to be able to succeed, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I get a little bit better. I get down in the low single digits, but that's just me playing with my buddies. I want to test myself, get into competitive golf, um, start playing well. I have an issue though. I almost always get off to a bad start. How would you tackle changing that? Well, I mean, first of all, like you're still pretty early on in your process. So you have to acknowledge that. Um, I think one mistake a lot of players make if they're hitting balls before their round, they use this as kind of like a litmus test on how they're going to play that day. And, you know, whether they're striking it really well, then they're like, well, great, you know, this is going to be a good day. Or let's say they're they're shanking a few and they're nervous. So like, well, then they walk up to the first tee with this defeatist attitude. Um, I've learned to become more um, embracing of the word neutral. Um, I think there's a lot of people in, in sports psychology and other walks of performance uh, advice that use this word more often. And I like it a lot for golf is that, you know, I, I do my best to step up to the first tee with neutral expectations, um, uh, in terms of my performance. Of course, I want to play well, that that's inherent. Like I want to play well, I want to shoot the best score possible. Um, but with that, I have to be open to the fact that like, yeah, I might struggle out of the gate and I'm going to have to grind a bit to get back to where I want to be, or maybe I can't save it. Um, so, I will hammer the experience thing over and over again because it is so important. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of players can get flustered by how they warm up and use that as kind of like a litmus test on how they're going to play that day. I don't know if you make that mistake, but I've seen that a lot. 
Um, Actually, one, also, one thing you you talk about in your book that's that's been a game changer for me is um, just being uh, being more intentional about those range sessions before a round. Uh, sure. I now try to go, which is super smart. And I want to say this because people might be listening. I would just kind of go through the bag and I'd be like, all right, <laughs> this is what we got today, right? And we've all had the range sessions where you hit it great and you play terrible and the other way around. But I like the thing that you talk about where you basically go and you kind of play, you play the first couple holes or the play the front nine or as many holes as you can get to there on the range. And so then I show up on the first tee and I've kind of hit hit a variation of my clubs and not putting so much pressure on how things are coming off. I, I I really enjoyed that piece of advice. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff you can do. First of all, like if you need to do homework on the course beforehand, like kind of making decisions on shots, uh, as many shots as possible off the tee. So you're just kind of like reciting the game plan when you tee off. Um, having a familiar warm-up routine when you get to the course, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I do. It's not superstitious, but it's just like, it's just little things I would do on the day of a tournament um, that I'm like, again, signaling to my brain, like you've done this before. This is nothing new or different. Like you're just going to do the same thing you've done over and over again. So that could be like the way you warm up, whether it's a dynamic warm up, how you go through your bag, um, getting the speed of the greens, um, whatever it is that you can hang your hat on. But I, I think the best opportunity you can give yourself to have a good start is to, again, being like comfortable in that moment. Um, and that doesn't guarantee that you're going to like be two under par through six holes. It just gives you an opportunity to access your skill more often because you're not like coming out of the gate. I think a lot of more inexperienced players are like, well, if I don't get a good start on the first five holes, then like, I'm not going to do it today. And that becomes like this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas like, I've had some of my best outcomes after shaky starts. And then, you know, some somewhere on the back nine, I got hot. You just don't know what's going to happen and you have to be open to possibilities. Totally. And do you find that, you know, reading, reading the book, uh, I, I texted Dave this uh, earlier. It was funny how much I, I felt I related to kind of your, your origin story with this stuff where say captain of a mediocre varsity golf team uh, struggled to enjoy the game because of kind of an obsession with scores. And I abruptly quit for college and then came back later with a different mindset. But um, I find that I, I always play much better in match play situations. And I think a lot of that has to do with just, I'm not focused on my score. Like I can afford to have a seven or eight out there and I'm it, the day's not over my, whatever ideal round I had in my head um, I don't have to worry about that. So do you find that your, your, uh, foundations of golf or just the principles you play with change a little bit or with, with match play versus stroke play? I, I try not to make it, make a differentiation internally to what format I'm playing. Um, I think there's players who can do that, but I think they're more rare. Um, I think, you know, someone like Tiger comes to mind where he's just like, <laughs> I'm going to pummel you today and there's right. nothing you could do about it. Yeah. Like I've seen some players I've come across who have like that moxie and that confidence, like, and maybe I have it like relative to certain like areas, like if I'm playing in a more controlled environment, but I'm not going to step up. Like when I got to the US men, I'm on my go to my caddy. I'm like, there's some dudes here who are teeing it up saying, like, good luck playing me later this week. <laughs> like, I'm gonna make it in match play. And when you play me, like, good luck to you. Like, do you know how much confidence and skill that requires? Um, so I think a better attitude for the more normal player is 
can I just say everything's the same? Like, I, I think golf is literally a series of independent events, whether that's a stroke play tournament, a match against your friends. Like, I try and view if I have a tee shot on the 18th hole or the first hole or an eight footer on the fifth hole that could bring me up three or I'm down two. Like, I'm literally just going to try and do the same exact thing every time. And if I get really good at doing that same exact thing every time, I do not care what the scenario is. I like my chances versus if I think there's a special button I have to press. If we're like, oh, we're playing a t- you know a team Nassau and we're pressing, it's like okay, time to make some birdies. It's like that button doesn't exist for me. Like I can't start making like three birdies in a row. And if I try to, like, then I'm going to start making some bad decisions strategically. You know, mentally, I'm not going to be in the right mindset. And I, I think most golfers would be best served that way. Um, because again, I, I don't think most of us have the ability to just all of a sudden like manifest these shots or this mindset. Um, and I think it's kind of like you're doing more harm than good thinking you need to constantly change based on the scenario. Yeah. Any, any good round that I've had that that's what I'm getting addicted to in golf. Now I love the meditative state of literally one shot when you're locked in and it's so hard to do It is even for us amateur golfers. Like I think this is what's one thing that's so wildly underrated about people who don't think golf is a sport. And you watch these guys on tour, like the mental grind of Thursday through Sunday is, is nuts. And when I'm in it, you almost black out for four and a half hours because you're like every shot, you're just focused, you're going through the process. And there is something, there's something that happens in the chemical, <laughs> there's something that happens with your brain, you know, and all the great players have talked about this. Um, I read that book, Be a Player uh, by Vision 54. I forget the name, the, who, who, uh, what the names of those those women are, but basically like there's a mental connection that you create when you visualize the shot. And if I don't go through that process for for two seconds and I just have a brain fart, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just, I just blew that ball out of bounds. And I know exactly why. It wasn't a mechanical thing. Like I didn't go through my process for, for one minute. So it's good to hear you say that because it's something that everybody can just rely on. And just as an outlet, this is a fun game. This is a, a, a hobby, an activity. I love the meditative part of like forcing yourself to focus one shot at a time. Yeah, I think it's funny. I, w- I was just writing about this in the new book is that <laughs> it, it's kind of sad to admit this, but you know, you're, you're pretty active on, on Twitter, Dave, and you do a great job on there. And I think the toll of running an online business for me is that, you know, I've I've lost a lot of my attention span, like being on social media. And I know others have too, as like the people who consume the content. Um, And I find like golf, especially competitive golf, I I tell my wife sometimes, I'm like, this is like my time to actually get so deeply focused on a singular thing and you describe the meditative state that like you know i'm trying to figure out how to do this outside of golf more often it's like that's why i think this game is so special and fun is because in in, in the world we live in and like our attention spans are literally being destroyed and competed for by like very big entities that are powerful um the game if you put your phone away allows you to get in this state that is like so refreshing to me and I look forward to it now that I can get inside this little bubble inside of this box and it's just very comfortable and it's nice to be there. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like an escape as well. Uh, and I, and I really, um, kind of cherish that more than ever. 
Well, Casey and I talked about this when we when we started this podcast. It's just like there is something about just being at this point in our life, mid mid to late thirties, right? Where I find myself, or I found myself, kind of just, and especially with with work, like I've built similar to you, right? Built an online business, like everything that I do happens <laughs> digitally somewhere. My kids come in, they they just see me sitting here, and they're like, "That doesn't work. I don't I don't know what he does." <laughs> Uh, and there's something about having an anal- that analog hobby, and I just to be out there in nature, not on your phone, locked in on something. That's just shooting a good score or not. I think like let's get back to like, what if I told you that you could have a four and a half hour, sometimes five or more walk in nature on, on this like amazing landscape? You talk about this in their book, in your book, and I try this sometimes either if I'm playing bad or just. I just take a minute to just like look around and I'm, I'm in, I'm in Vermont. There's mountains. It's just beautiful up here. I do try to take a, not to be super like hippie on you, but like, I do take a minute to be like, dude, come on. This is not your full-time job. You're out here playing golf. Like you tweet every Saturday morning. I see you, John, in, in the, in the summer. Like if you're teeing it up today, remember, have fun, blah, blah, blah. I think even just putting yourself in that frame of mind, like, oh, I haven't seen Casey in forever. We're going to go have a great time today. Just be in the moment. That's what I love about this game that I don't think you get from from a lot of other things. And I, it's important for me that my kids see me doing this because I want them to grow up around sports and have those outlets like we did growing up where you'd go play basketball at the Y for six hours and not have a care in the world. I think you can have that with golf. And I think to your point, it's more important than ever. Yeah, I think just having, no matter what happens out there, I just want to have a baseline appreciation that I got to do it. And I, as you said, like we'll take, several moments throughout the round to kind of take a mental snapshot. I don't care if you're a beginner golfer or, (laughs) I mean, I've been working with Mackenzie Hughes who plays on the PGA Tour. I mean, this is kind of some of the, the crux of the conversations we have together is like, I need him to go out there and appreciate the fact that he gets to play golf for a living because it's very easy for him and all those other players out there to just get so obsessed with the results and the score that it just becomes like, I can't perform. So a lot of it's even remind, and this sounds crazy to people like reminding him that, you know, he's out there to, you know, have some gratitude that he gets to do this for a living. Now, of course the context and the stakes of that are much different. Um, but you know, he came on our podcast and talked about that. I wanted people to hear that because it's, it's not just for like, you know, beginner or intermediate players. Like, I think that mindset's for everybody in some shape or form. We, we, this is very random. We have a Mackenzie Hughes story. Well, it's just involved with the t- tweet. Case, can you tell us? Yeah, well, uh, Mackenzie yesterday for the downtime at uh, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am when they were waiting out Sunday, um, got delayed, but he was saying, I'll take some questions. So Dave and I have this thing he brought up a few weeks ago where he... When he wait, goes wait, no, 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 no. John, do you run? Uh, I'm more of a biker. I've run in the past, but not still currently. Works. I think it still works. Do <laughs> and, you uh, listen to? Uh, you have headphones in when you bike or exercise? Yeah, but it's on the Peloton. Let's be a little bit more. Say, that's fine. Well, so that. so Dave uh, exercises and runs often and does it so with zero headphones, which I think is a little crazy. I mean, I don't run well, that much, so uh, I should. I will say this: I walk every day and I do not use headphones. See, but I'm same with, thing. Either when I'm with my wife or not with my wife, it, it could be either. So we had we had Kyle Porter on a couple of weeks ago and Kyle Kyle had just he kind of had like a real red face. He's like, sorry, I just came back from a run, gotta fight that dad bod, Dave. And he was like, I was like, let me ask you a question. Headphones or no headphones? Because I've I've switched. No headphones. Casey's tweeting at Mackenzie Hughes, and Mackenzie said something like, 
what are you crazy? Of course, I if I go for a run, I use headphones. <laughs> well, he said I'm taking questions, and that's the first thing that always pops in my head. Now well, I ask I think, anyone. <laughs> I think if it's a more higher exertion activity, like when I lift weights, I always put this on on Twitter. Like I literally listen to the Rocky Four, the same four or five songs over and over again. Like I could not lift weights without doing that. Yeah. Like if you gave me no yes. music, like forget it. Hold so, on, hold on. We got to double click on that. That's just a complete psycho move. The same four songs over yeah. and. <laughs> Over, I've I've completed. I have a tonal, so I have all like the digital confirmation. I've completed over two hundred weightlifting sessions over the last I don't know eighteen plus months. Ninety nine percent of them are to the same five songs from Rocky Four, and I often tell people that those songs got me through my first book. I would put them on in the morning, and it sounds crazy, but like. It's like a Pavlovian response at this point. If <laughs> I'm <gotta> tired, <laughs> if I'm tired and I don't feel motivated and I hear those synthesizers and trumpets come on, like you can't stop me. Like good luck. It's so funny. I have a very similar thing where going back to college, but and I still do it now. Anytime I'm writing or, or really deep into something, I put on the 1812 overture. I don't know how I found this. I'm sure everyone knows it. The da, na, 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 like the Fourth of July <laughs> fireworks song. I don't know what it is. It's like a 15 minute song, and it's very mellow. And then the end is that kind of the firework part, and it just kind of wakes me up when it gets to the end, where I know like, oh, it's a you know, I've just spent 14 minutes in my own head, kind of finding what we're talking about, like on the golf course, trying to find that almost meditative state where you're not thinking about anything but what you're focused on. I, it's this this song, for whatever reason, I can ignore and helps me get to like a white noise space. That's it's I, I do it on the course. I play songs in my head during my pre-shot routines, especially on the greens. It's become part of my process. Um, yeah, I, I'm all about it. But yeah, I, I don't think I could, to clarify, like if I was running right now, um, I, I view walking as like kind of a meditation. So I want to like look around and stare at the trees and come up with ideas. Like, I'm not sure I could do that while I was running though. All right. Well, so I'm, I'm the weird, intensity. I'm the weird one. Cause I go for a run and don't listen to anything. You guys I, listen I mean, to the same I'm things over and over. I'm envious that you're able to do <laughs> such a demanding physical activity without like the, uh, motivation for music. Yeah. For me, it's like just a painkiller. It's like a motivation to not think about every step I'm taking is miserable. Just to put a bow in this, Mackenzie did say, never, I'm not sure I could muster the strength without <laughs> to run without music. So All right, I got a bunch there. of, I got a bunch of, I want to jump around and ask you like a bunch of quick questions related to stuff you've talked about. And then I do want to talk about, I want to talk about your business and your writing process and we'll, we'll wrap up talking there, but maybe like, um, shortish kind of answers on on each one of those these topics can you talk about um block practice versus repetitions this one is for casey he needs to learn this so i mean we can go on for hours and we have on our podcast so you know block practice is what most golfers default to like same target same intention over and over and over again um random would be like changing the target the club um i mean you can get into subcategories where you're changing intentions um, I think most golfers have uh, overdosed on repetitive practice and they're not engaged. They just kind of rifle through the, the the bucket, what I would call a zombie range session. I'm not against block practice. I do a ton of it, but I'd rather it be more intentional. Can you go through a routine? Can you pick a target? Can you take time after each swing to absorb how is my impact, you know, ground contact, start direction, curvature, absorb what happened and then do it again? That is... In a, in a short description, a 
more effective block practice. Now, I think golfers get bored and I think introducing random practice where they're kind of changing targets. Um, you know, you can get into performance games. That's another thing. Um, but it gives your brain an opportunity to reset. And if you change the target, not that it, it it's not going to like work wonders, but I think it gives a lot of people a better chance of being more intentional and building skills. The whole point of practice is not to get into a groove and hit your seven iron really well after 30 swings. The whole point of practice is to prepare yourself for the truth of golf, which is you get one chance. Um, and I think if you blend the two of them, and I give a lot of ideas in the book on how to do that, um, I think you'll have a better chance of building better ball striking skills versus getting stuck in that zombie range session where you're not thinking, you're not engaged, and you're just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, I I, I wrote, I don't know why I wrote this, but I wrote block practice first repetitions, but it's that, it's that random, what, what did you, what word did you just use? What random. Random, yeah. Because this is, I mean, I make this mistake too, but I, I try not to make any more. Just you go to the range and you come back an hour later and you just hit a, a hundred drivers and you're pouring sweat and I I didn't get any better. For me now, I think having an instructor block practice, I try to do it. when uh, Right now, I'm trying to like shorten the length, shorten the top of my backswing and get in a better position. I think it's helpful that when you have something specific to work on. That's a perfect example of it. Like if you're working on something technical that you know a coach is telling you to do and it has relevancy versus like, oh, I just fired up YouTube. I'm going to try this swing move today. Like that's not productive. But, yeah. you know, you having customized swing advice and working on that drill, like that is productive blocked practice. All right. Here's the next question for you. Um, talk about shot shape. I've heard you rant on this with some other folks at some point, but should you have one shot shape with, with all clubs? Should you work it both ways? Should it be different with driver and irons? What's your opinion on shot shape? So I, I as I said before, with like intentions on shots and like whether it's match player, like I, I love continuity in golf. I love being able to do a few things really well, like super simple. Um, so yeah, I I prefer... You know, if you if you want to play a fade with your driver and a and a draw with your irons, like that's cool with me. Like I just th the answer to the question is choose the shot shape that gives you the tightest dispersion, the best chance of of hitting it well. Like if you're trying to play a draw and a fade, I guarantee you one of them is going to introduce more more double crosses where you just like you're setting up for a fade and you just blow it fifty yards left. What do you see? Versa. What do you see? Most of the high level tour, tour guys do. Do like do they all play one? Sh Obviously, they can work it both ways, but do they try to play one shot shape? It depends on the player. I think there's more of a movement to do one shot shape. Um, I think Brooks Kepka and DJ are two perfect examples. Like they started winning majors when they just like hit the repeat button on a baby fade and just stopped trying to play all the shots. Um, there's plenty of guys who. I mean, it's different for them because they have straighter ball flights now. So like someone like McKenzie, for example, like his path is very neutral. So like, yeah, if he's got the club face closed a little bit or open a little bit, it might be a baby draw or baby, you know, fade. So it's not that different, but he prefers to play a fade. Like that's his kind of like swing DNA. So outside of them, like if they're thinking that way, um, you're talking about the 15 handicap, get really good at one thing. You don't need to, I don't work the ball in both directions. I mean, I, I, I'm a more of a, a draw player and I've kind of straightened my ball flight out. I don't intentionally try and hit fades ever unless like there's a tree in the way and I really think I can bend it around there. Um, if there's enough space, that's one out of a thousand times, maybe. 
Um, I'm stepping up with the same intention pretty much on every swing. And that's where I think most golfers can play their best. So I'm not a fan of trying to work it both ways. But again, if you have a better shot shape with your driver and it's different than your irons, like go for it. Just do some testing. You can use launch monitors. You can track stuff on the course. Try and settle on the shape that gives you the best chance of less double crosses and tightening your dispersion. Like it is, I believe it's that simple. Resisting the pin is a universal concept that can help all golfers. I love this one. I try to do it, but I'm a sucker and I'm competitive, so I can't talk about this concept. Yeah, I think you want to shoot lower scores, you got to hit more greens or give yourself more easy chip and pitch shots. Um, and a lot of that happens if if people are just defaulting to the pin as their target. So if it's tucked left, tuck right on the front of the green, um, they're just shifting their target too far away from where it should be and they're short-siding themselves a lot. They're just not giving themselves enough opportunity to get the ball on the putting surface so i give a pretty basic strategy to most players with the approach game like as you get further away from the hole 100 yards and out just kind of playing to that two-thirds back of the green and, and more to the meat or center of it like that strategy has saved many many golfers a lot of strokes i think when you get better and you're let's say a better tournament player like yeah you could start adjusting targets closer to the pin but again, it's not directly at it unless it makes sense strategically. Like Decade from Scott Fawcett is a wonderful system for more advanced players on how to pick better targets. And even you know the average player can use it as well. But I just want people, again, with simplicity so that they step up to the ball and they're not like having four different decisions in their head. So if I tell them, hey, take a little bit more club and aim towards the center, like that's something you could do every time. And that will quiet. Like My main reason for telling people that is that I think it'll statistically, I believe it'll help them hit more greens, but it also will reduce the amount of indecision they hit before each shot because the decision's kind of already made for them. Um, and then you can make adjustments from there. When you, you bring in, I think it was maybe two two years ago when Cam Smith won the players, he he stuffed it on 17. Yeah, I think he was just aiming there. for the middle yeah, of the arena. Exactly. And, and, and he hit a little push and you find you find your way into something, right? And that's the the foolish thing about like watching golf on TV is like a lot of the times we're like drawing conclusions based on the result of each shot. But like I would love to have the player's intended target on each swing and then we <laughs> can know like, oh, he actually like blew that 10 yards right of where he was aiming. Um I've also put that in the book, like watching golf on TV is not the best instructor to becoming a better player. Uh, you talk a lot about incremental progress as being like a key to improvement. Um, what's something that you've you've been working on like recently or maybe a, a recent win? What's what's incremental progress for you, someone who's in the, the pluses? Uh, right now, the hardest thing I'm having to do is I have, uh, unfortunately, I have uh, tendinosis in my elbow. So but what would you, we would call tennis elbow. Um, and that's a tough one to rehab. Like you have to be very patient with it. So right now I'm, I'm looking for incremental progress in my, you know, rehab schedule and being patient with that and not trying to go hit too many balls or being patient with it. So, um, that's my current challenge, but like, yeah, with, with anything in golf, if you're looking to make a change and get better, like I had to really tackle my driver years ago. It's like, I don't expect to in two months start you know, hitting laser drives. If I can hit one or two less out of bounds every few rounds, hit, you know, a, a couple of more fairways and, and kind of make smaller, more achievable goals for myself along the way, like that'll help me feel like I'm more on track and not get down on myself. Like I think most 
not most, but a lot of golfers put themselves in a situation where they're looking for these enormous like short-term breakthroughs. And I know this is a problem in society in general, and the game doesn't work that way for most people. So you have to be, you know, I love the word incremental just because it gets you more on a path where you can like check off these little boxes and feel better about yourself. And then you look back and in six months, you're like, oh, I, I did that. Like I got way better at that because I wasn't like staring at, you know, the, the top of the mountain. You know, I know that's cliched along the way. I was just kind of looking at my footsteps. Hey, let's talk about your business a little bit. So you're, you're coming up and you're building a business in relatively a new era where you're doing that writing online. You started Practical Golf. You started your blog 2015. So you've been grinding on that for eight, nine years, which also people don't appreciate. It's not like you just started this a year ago. <laughs> um, that led to you building a presence on, on social media and eventually writing the book. Um, just curious, like as a as a business creator, marketer, audience builder, myself, like what? Um, tell me what what that experience has has been like. And did you expect to one day grow up and <laughs> be an online writer and have that be your job? No, no. I mean, the, the the most interesting part about the whole process is that like I ended up in a place where like I didn't really think I would be, but like I started it with like a deep passion for wanting to get this message out about playing skills and, and having the perspective of a golfer rather than a swing instructor. I thought that that voice was, was missing. Um, so yeah, I just started with the intention of, of writing good material. I was very interested in like online business. I used to work at Google, you know, when I first got out of college in 2005. So I got a little bit of a taste of it. So yeah, I was super interested in growing it all. I and mean, this is when like blogs were not dead, but they were on their downturn, I would say in 2015. But yeah, I learned like SEO, affiliate marketing, growing an email list, like all the skills that I know, you know, Dave, I, I, I follow a lot of your stuff. And I think it's very interesting. And along the way, I think the best skill I developed was that I was able to take a complicated game and explain it to people in a simple way that got them to change their habits. I wasn't very good at it for the first four, five, six years, but I kept experimenting and seeing what was resonating, especially with the business as well. Um, and it just got to a place where like, I kind of found my voice. Um, but as I said, with like even tournament experience, like I wrote so many, I wrote hundreds and hundreds of articles and for two or three years didn't really have much success to show for it, but I loved doing it and I kept going. And were you working? Um, were you, did you have a full-time job that was like- Yeah, I, I was still involved in a business with my father. I've always been in sales. Um, I would say it took me like five years to build it into a business where I was like, okay, I could do this full-time. Um, and it, you know, how I was making money changed a lot. Um, even to the point where when I released the four foundations of golf, which was really a culmination of like everything I had done from 2015, that when I put it together in one package and, you know, I did self publish it and I saw the response, I was like, it just totally changed my mind on like what my business was going to be and what I had to offer the golf world in the future. So, you know, the one thing I've learned is that like nothing stays the same, um, I kind of doubled down on what I noticed what was working and what I had, you know, I thought I had a competitive advantage. Really writing books is really hard. Um, writing is really hard. 
you know, so I, I thought like I, I, I have some type of advantage there. Um, and I do other stuff. I do podcasting and other things, but like, I just noticed, I'm like, what can I have the biggest impact with? And like, turn my attention there. So like, yeah, I'm just going to, I think I'm going to keep writing books and do everything else I do. But, um, what's cool now is you have, you have an audience. And so there's like this really powerful, you have the feedback loop. And so basically like when you go to write a book, you're never like, you're not going to be like, Oh, what should I write about? Right. If you're constantly writing articles for your website, sending it, you have a big newsletter list, almost 50,000 subscribers. You have amazing engagement on, on Twitter. You can share like a, a thought that, goes you know goes viral or gets a great response in your niche and you're like oh this is interesting people really like when i talk about this topic that stuff then becomes the seeds of like what you go and spend time deeper on and go and write the book right yeah i, I know you know this very well but like yeah it's very you know when i got the idea to write the foundations of winning golf i just started asking more questions to people like i just want to hear people's problems and or more importantly what they think is the problem um, or I could throw out mini ideas or mini articles and those turn into chapters. So yeah, like as you grow an audience, like it's kind of like an economies of scale thing. Like you have this disproportionate advantage where you can get a massive amount of feedback from people quickly. Um, and it's, it's no different than I think the comedian working on their 60 minute routine. Um, if they're a little bit more popular, they can go to any club they want and test out material. And if it bombs in front of 50 people in like rural New Jersey, like who cares, like I, if I put out something that, you know, the algorithm doesn't like or people don't respond to, I don't care because no one will remember it because they didn't see it or if they didn't like it, they'll it'll pass. But if I see something hit, then I'm like, okay, that's a chapter and I'll expand on that. So yeah, it's that is one of the advantages to having an audience is that, as you said, the feedback loop, which is incredibly important in becoming a better golfer, it's also important in, in putting out content that people find value from. Do you also find that could be a challenge sometimes as someone who you have these philosophies and you're talking about a lot about audience building and finding what resonates with people. Do you ever find that like sometimes the things that are resonating aren't so much the thing you are hoping to get across or are there things that are less resonating with folks that you're like, this is a key thing though that we still need to get across. It's a, it's a key foundation. Yeah. I think there's stuff that I will put in the book that I know wouldn't be a big hit on social media, but Hopefully, if I've done a good job in the book and I have people's attention and more importantly, their buy-in to listen to me as a coach, then they're going to listen, hopefully listen to that thing that I put in the book that would not go viral on Twitter or maybe would fall on deaf ears in a newsletter. So yeah, I think there's a bit of that where it's like, I'm going to, a lot of what I'm writing is getting you to take the medicine you don't want to take. And I will give you some of the greatest hits and the things that you like, but I also will give you some stuff that you probably don't want to hear. And if, again, you trust me and you think I'm doing a good job, then maybe you will do the hard work and change your habits on that topic. So, yeah, that's, I, I saw some, I don't know who said this, but like someone was saying the downsides of like using social media as a test for a book or generating ideas, like there's a different reward system for both. And I just try and do my best to blend them together when I create the finished work. Um, and then the audience will decide, like you'll, you'll see how people react. Just cause I'm a dork. Um, do you have a tool? Do you schedule your tweets? Do you write out or just like off the cuff? Do you have a process for writing there? Um, I'm, so I've experimented with both and I've been fortunate enough to like connect with some other like bigger creators over the years who we've kind of talked about this. 
I'm a very disorganized person, unfortunately. I think that's, I don't know if I think of myself as a creative person. I guess I am. But like with that, like my mom, <laughs> I don't want to compare myself to Elon, but I heard him say like, my mind is a storm. Like you don't want to be me. And like, sometimes I feel like that too, because like, I just have like all these ideas running through my head about like golf and business. And yeah, I think Twitter is just like this haphazard, um, me ejecting the ones that I think are best, but yeah, I'm not, I don't use tools. Um, I'm kind of a little, I'm more, I'm more disciplined than I used to be. Like I only want to do maybe one, two, three good thoughts a day at most. Like I used to just do stream of consciousness stuff and it got me nowhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm more disciplined, but I'm still not completely organized. If that makes sense. I wouldn't have guessed that you're, you're very, you're very organized and methodical in your, in your writing. So what? Oh, I'm a mess. Like it's <laughs> the only way I can write a book is if I say like, you're going to do this, like it's going to be really shitty for four or six months, whatever it takes you or over two years for the first one. And like, you're just going to get up every morning and do this. And that's what I have to do to myself to make it happen. And if I don't do that, like it's a blend of internal and external goals. I talk about that in the new book. If I don't do that, like I will not get it done. Like I can be lazy. I can be disorganized. Um, and if you think looking at me from the outside that I have all my shit together, like I absolutely do not. I want to make that very clear. That's all Case, before any, you knew the 1812 wanted... Overture thing though. That's <laughs> yeah, change, that's Rocky change your like, life. You have to listen to Rocky Four over and over yeah. again to work <laughs> t- out. Like, I'm going to try that. that. You're what does that tell that. you about me? <laughs> okay, so you want to? You got anything? Any parting words before we let John? Yeah, off the just hook? I, I will say I, I would put myself in the in the category of a creative person. With that comes the storm and all the disorganization you're saying. But once in a while, something will come across where I'm like, God damn, that's the. I wish I had wrote that, or I wish I had come up with that. Your thing on the war against double bogeys is one of the my favorite things I've ever read because it's like it was exactly the thing that I needed to to comprehend before, until I took kind of the next step in my game. You talk about that thank real you. quick and just what, how you came up with that and, and thank you. Just <laughs> thank you <laughs> for thank saying you. that. It, it's always interesting to hear that because I think that's what coaching is in a nutshell. Like just saying, finding different ways to say the same thing. And sometimes the way you say it will change someone's behavior and buy. And it could just could be a few words. It's crazy how that happens. Um, but yeah, I just, I figured out what a lot of people figured out about in golf was the way to get better was to reduce the big mistakes. It wasn't hitting more pins and tapping birdies. It was removing, oh shit shots. Um, so I knew when I first started, like, that's why no one paid attention to what I did for a long time because I was saying the boring stuff. I'm like, oh, you got to punch out of the trees. Like, you got to aim to the bigger part of the green. Like, You have to take your medicine. Everyone's like, well, that's not fun. I'm like, well, if you want to lower your handicap, that's what you have to do. So like, my rallying call became like, we have to fight the war on double bogeys. Like, That is the only way Like, me, you, and everyone else is going to get better is by removing the bigger mistakes because they bleed your score so much faster than a birdie restores it. Like, Birdies are not most golfers will not make more than half a birdie around. Um, but they will make a ton of doubles, triples and quads and getting those off the scorecard is how you turn a 95 into an 85 or an 85 into a 78. So yeah, I think that became my rallying call because it's just the truth. (laughs) Like there's no other way to say it. And I knew I sacrificed probably having a much bigger audience if I hadn't gone for maybe some of the more sexier stuff. Um, But that was always like my DNA as a golfer. I'm like, how can I 
fight against the worst parts of myself and the worst decisions and losing my temper and get rid of these bigger scores. And like, that's kind of like the genesis of everything I've done. And there's a lot of veterans of that war out there. So it resonates. Yeah, it's a it, lot of people. It's just, it is a universal concept. I don't yeah. care if you're trying to win a PGA Tour event, you know, break 100, 90, like it, you, you just have to reduce them. You can't eliminate them, but you got to reduce them. No doubles. All right, John Sherman, thank you for giving us an hour of your time. This was so good. So good to hang out with you. Finally get to put a face to the to the name. Although I, I read and listen to your stuff everywhere. So that's the other thing about building online. You feel like everybody everybody knows you. Um, go and check out John on Twitter. He's Practical Golf, practical-golf.com. Go and check out his book. And uh, maybe like six months from now when the new book is out or whenever that is, we, we'd love to we'd love to have you back on and, and dive into some of that. John, thank you for hanging out with us. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the, the long game pod. Thanks, man. I did. Thanks for having me on. He's talking the long game. Play the long game. They play the long game. They're experienced and they play the long game.